0: Well, good morning. It's good to be back. Yes, I, I echo that. <laughs> and um, I would say thank you very much for your prayers. I really appreciated your, your partnership with me, not just in sending me and actually paying to have me come back too, <laughs> but also for the way you prayed for me throughout my time in Jamaica. It was a wonderful time for me. Um, It had been 16 years since my family and I left Jamaica, and it was great to be able to go back to the church I pastored, to be able to bring the Word there, and recognize that God has been faithful to them. Uh, The church is still there, I didn't manage to mess it up too badly. And uh, it was great to be able to see how the Lord continues to be at work in and through that small church. Then the Monday, um, I spoke at the conference. Um, If you could, Dennis, if you could show the picture. I spoke at the 31st Caribbean Baptist Heritage Conference. And these were the pastors coming from Martinique, St. Vincent, Dominica. Barbados, Antigua and Barbuda, St. Lucia, did I say St. Lucia, and Jamaica, Um, there may have been other countries, oh yeah, the British Virgin Islands, and it was a wonderful time of gathering together with those pastors, yes, Martinique, (laughs) thank you, sir, I I missed the Trinis, but, you know, uh, they didn't come, (laughs) Huh?: Yeah. So anyway, um, and we were also joined online by Sam said, at some points, about 300 people, and I had the privilege of speaking to them about the supremacy of Christ and culture in the church and in personal life. And if you can see, um, that was the one of the few times that you would see me in a blazer. <laughs> Thankfully, the the building, the auditorium was air-conditioned, so I didn't die from the heat, but it was painful, and so the Lord is faithful, Um, and then one of the things I also wanted to do in coming there was introduce to them the ministry of the fellowship called Leaders Formation, and based on our conversations, um, a number of the churches were very interested, in participating in the pastoral training program that, that the fellowship has. So we'll see how it goes, and I'll be talking to the leaders formation leadership, and we'll see how the Lord would um, open a way for us to minister to the churches in the Caribbean. It'll probably be one of those international training efforts, and um, we'll see how the Lord would work. But again, thank you very much for your support, for your prayers, and the church that that, um, hosted the conference is also especially grateful for your generosity um, in allowing me to come and paying for me to come. And a small token of their appreciation, they sent some Blue Mountain coffee with me Uh, so I will be serving that not today but on July 30 when we have Matt Fraser and his family they are our missionaries in Quebec we're gonna have a Q&A barbecue after the service and so we'll serve the Blue Mountain coffee along with the barbecue um, to to emphasize or highlight our, our focus on missions. All right? so that's something to look forward to. Now I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. And this is a, the story of a barbecue that was not. <laughs> so Daniel chapter 3. When Zach and I have his permission to tell this story. When Zach was about two weeks old, Joel and I thought, you know what? This kid is starting to look a lot like Gollum. (laughs) Uh, I think that's on the slide, right? (laughs) What we didn't realize was that the child was dehydrated. (laughs) Thankfully, the public health nurse came to us that same day and told us to take him to the hospital. And when I said, yeah, I'll I'll bring him tomorrow. She said, no, 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 right now. And when we took him to the hospital, we found out that he had a bacterial infection. And so he ended up in the neonatal ICU uh, for about 10 days. And while he was confined in the NICU, one of our neighbors tried to comfort me by saying, We have faith. And, you know, I, I appreciate her effort. She was being kind to me. But at the same time, I came away from the conversation rather saddened. Because to say we have faith left the object of her faith undefined. So it was more like wishful thinking than biblical faith. It fell far short of the robust biblical faith that we all need in order to be faithful to Christ in times of crisis. And this passage, this barbecue that was not, gives us a glimpse of what biblical faith really looks like. Now, this follows on from Daniel chapter 2 where Daniel explained Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And Nebuchadnezzar was very impressed with Daniel's God. But he was not willing to submit to him. And we see that in chapter 3, verse 1. Having heard that he was the head of gold that was ruling on borrowed time, Nebuchadnezzar said, hey, what do you mean I'm the head of gold? I am going to make a gold statue that is 90 feet high in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Forget being the head of gold. Let's make a full statue made of gold. And interestingly, Babylon was the site of the Tower of Babel. If you recognize that Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue is an expression of his hubris, you find the connection with the Tower of Babel, which was the original expression of sinful human hubris. Not content with establishing this gold statue, he orders all government officials to worship it on pain of death, on pain of being barbecued. It was his way of proving God wrong. He was saying, well, oh, you say I'm gonna, I'm gonna die and my empire's gonna crumble to dust? I'll show you, God. I will unite my empire around a common religious allegiance. And, and by that common religious allegiance, stabilize it for all time. And you know, for, for the government officials involved, it wouldn't have posed any problem for them. Because the nations under Babylonian rule were all polytheistic. They worshipped many gods. And so, oh. You want me to worship that gold statue? No worries. I'll just add that 90-foot gold statue to my pantheon of gods. What's one more? All I need to do is bow down when the music plays, and I wouldn't be barbecued. All good. The only people who would have a problem were faithful Jews like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. See, Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, is a jealous God, and he would not tolerate any rivals. And it's not that the Lord is insecure. The Lord is jealous because he loves his people very much. He doesn't want us to worship idols because he alone is the true and living God. As Danielle read in our call to worship, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases Him. That's what it means to be the true and living God. He is sovereign over all. He does whatever pleases Him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound in their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. See, to worship anyone or anything other than Yahweh is to worship a lie. It is to trust in what cannot help but only harm. As the psalmist would say, those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. You'll be as dead as they are. And that's why the author of Daniel actually mocks the worship service that Nebuchadnezzar organized. Dale Ralph Davis points out, for an Israelite, Nebuchadnezzar's statement in that verse, now if you are ready to fall down and worship the image that I have made, sums up the theological assininity of the whole affair. To worship what someone made. But a reader almost ducks under the machine-gun-like occurrences of the verb kum, or set up. It appears nine times, always in reference to the image the king had set up. The writer is telling you that it's no more divine than your knee replacement. The writer is probably mocking as well when he describes all the pomp of the occasion. He seems to tell the story with such deliberate repetition the extended lists of the brass attending, and the fourfold itemizing of Nebuchadnezzar's orchestra. By the way, he writes up the story, the writer turns the pomp into pomposity and coats the dignity with derision. The occasion is clearly impressive, yet in the writer's hand, subversively ludicrous. And so not surprisingly... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego resolved that they would stay faithful to God just as they had done so in Daniel chapter 1. They would be faithful to God despite peer pressure and the threat of death. And as in Daniel chapter 1, they did it without fanfare. See, biblical faith is not self-promoting. Their goal in disobeying Nebuchadnezzar's command was to glorify God by continuing to give him their undivided loyalty. They were not trying to call attention to themselves. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar would not have known of their disobedience were it not for their jealous colleagues who wanted to get rid of them. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. Look at what the text says. Therefore, at that time... Certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously, note the word, maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. It was a very clever combination of flattery. O king, live forever. Of truth and of false accusations. Truth in that certainly Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not serve Nebuchadnezzar's gods, neither would they worship the golden image. But it was not true that they do not pay attention to Nebuchadnezzar. In every other matter, they would be obedient servants to the king because these Jews were committed to the flourishing of the city to which God had sent them. They were obeying God's command to seek the welfare of the city. And so they would pay attention to the king. They would do what was best for the kingdom. In fact, their disobedience to Nebuchadnezzar was for the good of the kingdom. But, you know, as with any megalomaniac megalomaniac whose will is thwarted, Nebuchadnezzar was furious. And so he called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to himself and confronted them. Verse 14 and 15. He said, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. That's very gracious, isn't it? But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? That was the issue, wasn't it? And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew the answer already. They were unfazed. And so they respond with confident humility. Verse 16. It is biblical faith that recognizes our God is in heaven. He is sovereign. He is king. But a faith that also recognizes he does whatever pleases him. I don't know what he will do. But I will still trust him regardless of what he does. As Rodney Stortz would point out, biblical faith, Has the assurance to say, I know my God is able to deliver me. It has the confidence to say, I believe that my God will deliver me. There's knowledge and there's assent. But it also has the submission to say, But even if he does not, I will still trust him. The third element of biblical faith is. Resting or submitting. Noticia, fiducia, I forget the rest. Noticia, ascensus, and fiducia. I will entrust myself to him. As Job would say, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. We need to understand that faith is not a rabbit's foot, and God is not a genie who is bound to do for us whatever we want. See, biblical faith means we we assess the rightness of our actions by the standard of God's word, not by the results or effects of our actions. Because faith is principled, not pragmatic. In fact, you know, living by faith will often involve sacrifice, but we still obey. Because faith is focused on God. If, as John Piper would say, faith is being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus Christ, then we will obey regardless of the cost. Because Jesus is more precious to us than life itself. And even when we're disappointed by the immediate outcome, then we will still hold on to to God and trust Him. We persevere. Because we rely, we trust in His unchanging character, and we are convinced in His unfailing love. So that in the midst of our confusion and our dismay, we still cling to Him because we believe that He is still acting for our good and for His glory. I remember being confronted with this truth about 30 years ago, 1992. I was trusting the Lord to finish my undergrad thesis so that I could graduate. I'd finished all the experiments. I said, oh, praise the Lord. And then when I ran the product of my experiment, I found out too late that I had not been able to synthesize the compound I was trying to produce. And so I found out I would have the unique an unenviable distinction of being the most outstanding graduate to not graduate. <laughs> Worse, I wouldn't be able to work as a teaching assistant the following semester. And I was devastated. I, mean, I was humiliated. And it goes without saying that God was humbling me. But I look back 30 years later And I realized that God allowed me to fail in order to lead me into his purposes. He was being kind to me by not giving me what I wanted. See, had I graduated on time, I would have pursued a Ph.D. in chemistry, and who knows where I would be right now. I certainly would not have the life that I am enjoying right now, and I realize I should thank God for not letting me finish. And I, and I have, on multiple occasions, said, Lord, thank you for allowing me to fail. Now, that being said, you realize Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had no clue how things would turn out. They only knew in that moment, as far as they were concerned, God mattered more than life itself. And so they will cling to him even if God chose not to rescue them. All they knew was that they would not serve Nebuchadnezzar's God, nor would they worship the golden image he had set up, even if it meant they would die and die a horrible, painful death. And so Nebuchadnezzar was flaming mad. We are told in verse 19, he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Like, really, what's the point? Heating a furnace seven times isn't going to make you more dead. (laughs) But that's the irrationality of idolatry, isn't it? And he had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the furnace. And we are told that it was so hot the mighty men, the heroes of the army who through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego weren't even in the furnace. They were just outside the furnace. They were overcome and they died, maybe from heat stroke. So you would imagine Nebuchadnezzar would have seen Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego screaming, burning, you know, if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you would imagine the images of, you know, when, when, they, when the Nazis opened the Ark of the Covenant and they all just started to flame and turn to dust, right? Well, look at verse 24 and 25. King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And rose up in haste, he declared to his counselors, Did did, did, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, "Uh, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. See, Nebuchadnezzar said, Nebuchadnezzar, had demanded, and who is the God who can deliver you out of my hands? Well, there's this answer, right there in that fiery furnace. We can't be sure who that fourth man was. It might have been an angel. It might have been Christ himself, pre-incarnate. What we can be definite about, though, is that God, the God whom they worshipped, The God whom they served, the God to whom they would cling, even if it meant their lives, had delivered them from the power of the flames. Look at verse 27. The fire had not any power over the bodies of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed. I mean, it's amazing. And no smell of fire had come upon them. I wonder if they even sweat in that furnace. Imagine that. God had kept his promise to be with him. Isaiah 43, verse 2. God said, I will be with you when you walk through the fire, the flame shall not scorch you. And that's precisely what happened for these three men. And so, Nebuchadnezzar could only respond. Look at verse 28 and 29. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command. And yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Isn't that awesome? A pagan king blessing our God. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Hear those words again. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. That's God. God had vindicated his faithful people. Better yet, God was glorified through his faithful people. But you know, there's something that we often miss in this text. And I hope we recognize with Dale Ralph Davis something very, very important. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow to the statue, the real miracle of Daniel 3 has already happened. Walter Luthi was right. That there are three men who do not worship Nebuchadnezzar's totalitarian state is a miracle of God, the miracle of the confessing church. That the three were not devoured by the fire is no greater miracle. Suppose the fiery furnace had consumed them. The real miracle would have happened just the same. You see, faith that perseveres in the face of fiery trial is the real miracle because none of us are strong enough. I could preach this sermon saying, be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I'm setting you up for failure because none of us can be like them. None of us have the strength. Because it wasn't about about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The issue there was, who is the God who would be able to rescue you? The real issue is, where does that faith come from? Genuine faith that perseveres is a gift from God and God alone. And only this God, the God who is in heaven, who does whatever pleases him, he alone can sustain genuine faith. It is a gift. And it's the kind of faith that is able to say, my father's way may twist and turn, my heart may throb and ache, But in my soul, I'm glad to know, he maketh no mistake. My cherished plans may go astray, my hopes may fade away, but I'll still trust my Lord to lead, for he doth know the way. Though night be dark, and it may seem that day will never break, I'll pin my faith, my all in him, he maketh no mistake. There's so much now I cannot see. My eyesight's far too dim, but come what may, I'll simply trust and leave it all to him. For by and by the mist will lift, and plain it all he'll make. Through all the way, though dark to me, he made not one mistake. This anonymous poem was read at the funeral of a 33-year-old woman named Ruth Gerston Sinnard, who died of cancer just before her fourth wedding anniversary. Before she died, she requested that it be read at her funeral. That's God at work in her life. But it wasn't a leap of faith. Neither was it a leap of faith for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They could look back to the Exodus to recognize that God is able to save. They could look back to Daniel 1, Daniel 2, and know that God was able to help them. You know, she had even more confidence than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because she and you and me could look back to the cross of Jesus Christ who laid down His life for us to pay the penalty for our sins. And it didn't stop there. He rose again for our justification and He brought in the new creation. You see, friends, the death and resurrection of Jesus demonstrates both God's unfailing love for us and His infinite power to save. The cross is the basis of our confidence. As the Apostle Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, it's a verse that I cling to in moments of distress and crisis, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This was the passage that came to my mind when I was in the intensive care unit of Sunnybrook. The second time, my, the, the, they tried to take me off the respirator and the second time I failed to last without the respirator. I was frustrated, Joel was frustrated, we felt very hopeless. But then I remember this verse. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? How the heck do I know that God is for me when I'm in bed and I can't get off this respirator? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He loved me enough to give his son. Jesus loved me enough to give himself for me. I can't doubt his love. Can he help me? Can he give me all things? Well, this same son who gave his life rose again three days later. I guess I can trust him. (laughs) I mean, that's really the bottom line, isn't it? Our God is worthy of our trust. No matter the circumstance, He is able and He will do what's best for you and me, for our good, and for His glory. So will we not entrust ourselves to Him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you we thank you that in the midst of our confusion, in the darkness of our situation, we thank you that you are the sovereign God, the one who is in heaven, enthroned, who does whatever pleases Him. And though that may sound like a really cold statement, for you are in heaven, we are on earth, We thank you that that's not the end of the story. That's not the only thing your word tells us about you. We thank you that you in your sovereignty chose us before time began. You chose to set your love upon us. Not because we deserve it. Not because you saw anything worth loving in us. But because you freely chose to love us. You exercised your sovereignty and you chose to love us unconditionally. And in that unconditional love, you chose freely to send your son. And the second person of the triune God freely chose to become a human being just like us except without sin while still remaining God. And freely chose to humble himself even further by laying down his life on the cross. That cruel, hateful cross to die the most humiliating death man had ever designed so that he may save us by being the sacrifice and substitute for our sin. So that he bore our sin upon his sinful, sinless, holy self. He became sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Oh, Father, what a glorious truth. And so we realize that this is the sovereign God doing what pleases him. And we rejoice that your infinite sovereign power is exercised in infinite self-giving love. Love towards us. So forgive us, Father, for so often we act in unbelief. So often we doubt your goodness. Thank you, Father that in the midst of our weakness, you are our strength, you are our help, you are our song. Help us then to cling to you and we thank you that if ever we do not fall away from you, if ever we do not give up the faith, it is because you do not give up on us but continue to hold us and grip us in your grace. So Father, Father, Continue to teach us the vastness of your mercy, the infinite depths of your love, so that we may grow in our confidence in you and continue to grow in our love for you, that we may live for your glory and for your honor. This we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.